Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Good tidings, dear listeners, and welcome to the October 2023 edition of State of Distressed Debt. Part of the FIC Focus podcast series where we focus on the U.S. stressed, distressed, and bankruptcy markets. I'm your host, Noel Hebert, and joining me to explore the state of play are litigation analyst Nagisa Baluku and senior distressed analyst Phil Brindell, each of Bloomberg Intelligence. Before diving in, we always like to offer a little public service announcement. If you are a new or regular listener and like what we're doing with FIC Focus, please do take a moment to follow, comment, and share as that helps us to keep bringing great guests and content to you. In this episode, valuation, valuation, and you know what, valuation. And who better to talk valuation with than Aswath Damodaran. He's the professor of finance at the Stern School of Business over at NYU. If you're in business, you have a CFA or pursuing an MBA, you know exactly who we're talking about. But first, Phil, you know, we met just a few weeks ago in September Uh, on this podcast, and both you and I were still scratching our heads sort of at the resiliency that we're seeing in the high yield market and distress more broadly, Uh, not only given the seasonal challenges that we thought they should see in September, uh, but also just against an increasingly penalizing rates backdrop. Fast forward to today, you know, it looks like maybe higher for longer. People are starting to digest that a little bit, and we're starting to see some cracks emerge. So at least in the high yield space, spread is pushed down to about 420 as of the close on October 3rd. Yields are back above 9%. Uh, but if this is going to be a real correction, we've got a long way to go. So uh, maybe first, uh, let's talk about what you're seeing on the landscape of distressed. Thanks, Noel. Yeah, the distress ratio basically flatlined for September. Um, we saw that when we took a look at it mid-month that it seemed to be going lower and distress supply was actually a little bit lower, not a lot, uh, but it bounced back up. And so it was completely flat even. And it was kind of entertaining seeing a one basis point return for the month of September. So it, it, it checks the box for a positive month, but not all that. And, uh, so in the know, rule of 72, that would be uh, how many years before you double your money? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah, and and but as you pointed out, high yields seem to be down a little bit more than 1% in September. So I think they felt the equity market swoon that we saw in the back half of September uh, uh, more significantly than distressed. Um, October, seasonally weak, distress usually falls about 1.2%, which I think is probably like makes it the third or fourth worst month. We will see. I mean, historical trends haven't really been playing out correctly. You, you know, this is our sixth month in a, uh, it's a, our sixth month in which we've had distress supply go lower. Um, and we've had four months of positive returns when, Seasonally, it's supposed to track up, you know, supply is supposed to track upwards and returns are not supposed to be positive. Nevertheless, uh, you know, as I keep looking at it, and I think you're probably of the same mindset, you know, credit spreads look vulnerable here. I mean, the, these high rates are really taking a toll on cash flow for these companies. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I'm seeing a lot of, uh, you know, these exchanged, like Carvana is a good example. They exchanged into uh, notes where a lot of the interest 
rates, which is very high, um, it, it's pickable. And so, you know, you're seeing that all over the place is that even when, you know, they're taking their big hefty rate for exit financing, that, that sort of thing, but they're allowing, uh, you know, people to pick the, their credits to pick. Um, we saw that with Cineworld. So anyway, uh, I I remain sort of waiting for <laughs> distress supply surge, um, at least for it to pick up speed. And uh, I don't know. It, yeah. it, the, the way things swooned at the end of September, I'm, uh, I don't feel like that's too out of the cards right now. Yeah, it'll be very interesting because we've definitely seen, you know, whether you're talking 2015 or 2018, there's definitely windows of time where, you know, the fourth quarter ends up being very, very sloppy for the marketplace. Uh, you know, I think one of the things that sort of ties into what you're saying, and you hear it a lot now, obviously, is private credit has sort of become the thing uh, in the marketplace is where a lot of this first lien lending is happening. And a lot of it's happening in the double digits. And that just creates a very different sort of return calculus or even just sort of the, the types of equity checks you need to write to make some of these deals float. And if you think about the vintages that obviously predate the last you know six to 12 months, it gets very interesting in terms of how you might want to go about that analysis. But maybe more broadly thinking about sort of the, uh, you know, what the cadence is in the bankruptcy market, more broadly speaking, uh, what kind of activity are you seeing there, Nagisa? So it, it has been quiet, uh, I'd say, for the month of September, uh, but that's also largely in part, it could also be explained sort of by procedural issues or procedural questions. Um, uh, we we were expecting, for example, to see the uh, SVB FDIC issue come, uh, come to bankruptcy court that has been delayed because of an October, late October hearing in the district court. So some of it can be explained sort of by procedural matters. We are waiting for uh, the Incora dispute um, in the coming weeks as well. So that's kind of, that could be explained by that. I think what's been interesting in the bankruptcy court uh, has been the case of Yellow. I think we spoke a bit about it last month. Um, and uh, we sort of saw a shift there from when they filed to where they found themselves just within days after the filing, where it sort of seemed a lot more promising than uh, where they had been uh, right before they filed in terms of getting an improved dip, in terms of getting uh, quite a bit of interest through the marketing process. Obviously, the marketing process is ongoing in that case now, uh, and uh, it will be a few more weeks before we sort of have a better understanding as to where the things fall. But that was interesting, kind of seeing how things actually got a lot better after the filing uh, compared to where um, the company stood right before. So uh, so that's really interesting, Nagisa. I guess maybe as a follow-on to that in terms of new bankruptcy activity, it seems like the, the courts are relatively quiet on that front as well. Uh, are we seeing, uh, What I guess, what are we seeing on that side? So it, it has been quiet from our perspective, at least what we've covered, anything of note, but... Uh, I guess we did have Malincrod enter with a prepackaged plan. Um, I think the plan is the intent is to exit fairly quickly. Uh, so we've seen that, but outside of that, it's been pretty quiet. All right. So I guess that maybe enters into an, a good segue for us here to pivot over uh, to our in-depth conversation with Aswath. So we're very excited today to be joined by Aswath Damodaran, 
He's the professor of finance at the Stern School of Business at New York University. That's the New York University. Uh, for those of you who aren't familiar with the professor, he is the preeminent voice on valuation in markets, author of over a dozen books, many of which I own, uh, and the many-time recipient of the Stern School of Business Excellence and Teaching Award. And of course, he's our guest here today. Uh, professor Damodaran, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so let me start with a little bit of confession, because I think the, the challenge that I struggled with coming into this conversation today is there's such a deep uh, bed of, of things that we can kind of go about, but I think we'd really be remiss if we didn't start with rates. Uh, you know, the front end of the Treasury curve solidly above 5%. Uh, we touched there, you know, overnight on the 30-year, but we're flirting with that uh, sort of again this morning. Can you maybe walk us through why rates matter so much for valuation and how maybe the last year and a half of global monetary policy has out, has altered sort of the outlook for risk assets? No, I mean, it, I think the easiest way to think about why rates matter is to think on a personal basis. I mean, I'll give you an example. Three years ago, I didn't even think about how much cash I had in my brokerage account because it was, I mean, the, the reason is, you know, if I'd invested the cash, I made 0.05%. It seemed pointless to think about the cash. When rates change, the dynamics for all investors change because they give you an alternative. Today, that cash can be invested at 5.5%, so it makes you think a little more about where should I put my cash. It makes alternative investments have to earn more to justify being in your portfolio. So just a pure opportunity cost argument. As rates rise, they change the choices you make on every single risky asset class, whether it's stocks, whether it's real estate. So I think in a sense what 2022 and 2023 have brought back is that recognition that there is an opportunity cost to investing in stocks, that you can earn a reasonable return on bonds and bills. And that is something we got away with for a decade not doing. And for many investors, it's a learning process of having to bring that back into the equation. And it's going to affect the value for all risky assets as a consequence. You know, that touches on something that I, you know, I speak about a fair amount when I'm out there is, is sort of like this reteaching process, right? It seems to me that sort of in the wake of the financial crisis, you know, 07, 08, 09, the Fed probably spent the better part of two or three years trying to teach the market, right, that they were there to to backstop sort of some of the volatility uh, to re-encourage sort of the credit creation mechanism. Now it seems we're almost in that sort of opposite mechanic where the markets have gotten so acclimatized uh, to this Fed support that the Fed's having to sort of reiterate statements to the other end, most notably sort of the higher for longer uh, uh, sort of argument. So I guess maybe how do you think about how long maybe the market takes to sort of adjust to that framework? And do you think that higher for longer A can work uh, and B, is, is something that the Fed can actually sort of hang on to? Now, I've long argued that the market's obsession with the Fed is unhealthy. It's unhealthy because it, you know, the market looks to the Fed as if the Fed has the power to set rates. And I want to emphasize that. The, I know I've described the Fed as essentially the equivalent of the Wizard of Oz. You remember the Wizard of Oz, everybody thought the Wizard of Oz had these incredible powers, but the reality was the Wizard of Oz had no powers. It's the perception that he had powers that gave him power. Central banks don't have the power to set rates. I mean, I know that goes against the conventional wisdom. The Fed sets one rate, the Fed funds rate. 
And I ask investors, when was the last time you borrowed money at the Fed funds rate? The reality is <laughs> none of us ever, ever deals with the Fed funds rate. We deal with mortgage rates, we deal with table rates, we deal with, and those are market set rates. And sometimes, or often, I think it's good for investors to step back and think, what drives those rates? It's not central banks, it's two fundamentals. One is expected inflation, whether you like it or not, is a central component of rates. The, side, the second is what do you think about the future of the economy, expected real growth? I actually have a graph that I use in my class of what I call an intrinsic risk-free rate. And here's what I do. I take the inflation rate in a year, add real GDP growth to it, and look at it relative to the T-bond rate. It's amazing how well it explains changes in T-bond rates over time. So when people ask me, well, why were rates low for the last decade? My answer is not because the Fed did quantitative easing. It's because we had a combination of two circumstances. One was low and stable inflation. The other was anemic growth. You add low plus low, you get low. You change one of those, one of those components, rates are going to rise. And the big story over the last year and a half is not what the Fed's been doing, even though people get distracted by it. It's what inflation has done in terms of coming back into the equation. And that, to me, is going to be what drives whether rates stay at 4.5%, rise to 6%, or drop back to 3%. Not what the Fed decides to do over the next six months, the next year, or the next two years. Now, this is maybe a little bit out of the bailiwick, but uh, I guess one of the things that I think about today, uh, and maybe you have a view on, is because uh, you touched on inflation, sort of maybe, you know, sort of having a view in terms of the permanence there. I think one of the things that struck me, certainly over the last 18 to 24 months, is sort of the 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 seeping uh, into the services sector of relative labor strength. Right, whether right. that's explicit unionization or intended unionization, or just sort of the overflow benefits, so to speak, of, of unionization elsewhere, where services sector, which historically has been a little bit more of a price taker from where I sit, seems to be feeling itself a little bit more uh, and, and sort of asking for more. Do you look into segments like that and, and sort of go, okay, that could be you know, uh, a concern over the intermediate term in terms of how we think about uh, you know, risk premiums or the discount rate? The reason I think inflation is such a difficult problem to deal with is it starts to permeate into how people behave. How does that show up? You walk into, into a shop, you notice that the price of the taco you bought just two weeks ago is up 10 cents. And it seems to go up 10 cents every two weeks. For a decade, you never saw that happening. I paid the same price for my Cali burrito in 2020 as I did in 2015 because shopkeepers for a decade ended up with low and stable inflation not having to adjust prices. Once inflation becomes part of the process, it starts to affect everything. So shopkeepers raise prices. Can you blame wage earners for saying, look, our wages need to keep up with inflation? So I think what you're seeing in terms of the demand for wages going up is, at least on the part of unions, the expectation that inflation is not some transitory phenomenon, that it's here to stay, and that they need to make sure that their wages go up by enough to cover inflation. The problem is you get this self-fulfilling component then to inflation because if they demand higher prices, inflation is definitely here to stay. And this is part of the reason it's best not to let inflation out of the bottle because once it's out and behavior changes, that those behavior changes are tough to break. Remember when Paul Volcker had to break behavior changes, he had to put us into a <laughs> close 
it wasn't a recession. It was actually close yep. enough to a depression for three years before behavior change. You don't want to be in that scenario. And I think, unfortunately, with inflation out of, you know, out of the bottle, this is something that started to affect behavior. And that takes a while to break. And sometimes it takes pain. Yeah, and that's even in an era, too, where the central bank probably arguably had a little bit more independence from the political system, whereas right. now, arguably, not that they're codependent, but there's definitely sort of a tighter linkage. I guess uh, before we move to the next question, what's in a Cali burrito? A Cali burrito as whatever you want to it plus French fries. Oh, oh, well, then that's that sounds yeah, so like something that's it, my speed. It kind speed. of saves you the side of French fries. You just put it into the burrito. So it's uh, All sounds right, perfect that's, that's, for that's, everyone's that's, cholesterol levels. <laughs> it's going on to my menu. So uh, I want to move on to like one of your books, uh, which is entitled Narrative and Numbers, The Value of Stories in Business. Uh, and for our listeners, that's now available at Amazon.com or your favorite bookseller. Uh, so maybe first you can summarize the relationship, right? And because I know this is something you talk about a lot is sort of every every number needs a story, every story needs a number. Sort of what do you mean when you say that? I, you know, that book was written in response to what I saw as a disquieting trend in valuation, which is valuation had become financial modeling, big Excel spreadsheets. And you've seen investment banking valuations, which is 500 line items, worksheets connected to each other. I wasn't sure who was running who. Was the analyst running the model or was the model running the analyst? Because it was really just financial modeling. And I felt that the quality of valuation, in spite of having more data and more powerful tools, was actually getting worse over time. And one reason was that analysts had lost the capacity to tell stories about companies. You think what story got to do with valuation? Everything. When you buy equity in a company, you're buying a story about the company. And that story has to be converted to numbers, and that numbers, those numbers drive a valuation. So that book was about making explicit that connections. The next time you ran an Excel spreadsheet, you start at least thinking about what is that growth assumption I'm making tell me about my story for the company. If you assume a 30% growth for Coca-Cola for the next 10 years, what kind of story are you telling about people drinking more beverages, you know, more Coca-Cola? And where is this growth going to come from? It forces people to look past the numbers at business questions that need to be answered in valuation. And it forces them to be internally consistent rather than just tweaking numbers to get a higher or lower number. And so it's been... I guess about six years since. How do you think uh, the quality of valuation has evolved since then? I'll tell you, the, the you know, people seem to want to get take half of the book and run with it. So VCs <laughs> take the story part and tell bigger and bigger stories, and analysts take the numbers part and build bigger and bigger models. There's almost no conversation between the storytellers and the number crunchers. And you know what? I think we reap what we sow. We essentially push people to specialize. We push people to, hey, if you're a numbers person, work more with numbers. And you start to see that at a very early age now, seventh grade, eighth grade. And I think we, you know, we, we've ended up with, a, with, with tribes of people, people who can't speak the other side's language. And I think, unfortunately, we almost have to rethink how we educate our young people. We need to encourage them to work on their weak side. 
If you're a numbers person, work on your storytelling side. If you're a story person, work on your number crunching side because I think that what we need are people with both skills. And we lack that right now because we reward specialization. I guess the other thing that strikes me about narratives, right, is, you know, where we're talking about AI today or .com back in the day or any of the things that have sort of uh, come in the interim, you know, it seems that, you know, they become market narratives and they become market movers, not company movers. Uh, does that kind of give you pause or concern or does that sort of raise any antenna for you in terms of saying, hey, this is an opportunity to do X, right? Take the other side or... You know what? I am never concerned about people doing whatever they want. I mean, it's not my money, and I, you know, why should I lose sleep about what other, what other people are doing? But I'm glad you brought up, you know, AI. Right? It's a big buzzword. The stories are driving ARM or Nvidia, but the problem is the stories without numbers to go with them. So what I mean about connecting stories numbers is, in the case of Nvidia, I said, you know what? I accept the fact that AI is a huge boost to Nvidia as a company. It's going to be a growing market. It's going to be $300, $350 billion of chips just to drive the computing power. And NVIDIA is in the driver's seat in that market. So when I valued the AI piece of NVIDIA, I tried to put numbers on the story. I said, how, will the, how big will the AI chip market get? How dominant will NVIDIA be in that market? And then I tried to value that story based on my projections. You know what? I doubled the value of NVIDIA. That's a good news. The bad news was even after doubling the value of NVIDIA with the AI story, <laughs> I ended up about 40% below the market price. So I said, I get your story, but I don't get the number you're driving with the story. And that's what I mean about connecting stories numbers is I have no problem with the AI story. If you're willing to fill in the rest of the blanks and say, okay, this is what the story means in terms of revenues, earnings, cash flows. You know what the response I get from AI you know, fans is, hey, that's too qualitative. It's too subjective. Hey, get used to it. Life is subjective. You got to forecast the future. And if you're going to want me to invest based on a story, you have the obligation to try to flesh out that story. I'm not going to measure you on how perfectly your forecasts come through. I'm going to measure you on how well you adapt that, those numbers to what the data tell you about the story. So I think we need to bring in some element of, you know, connecting those big stories numbers to prevent ourselves from overpaying for these buzzwords. Interesting. So I'm going to kind of go into one more question, then I'm going to set it up so that it brings Phil into the conversation here, because I know he has a ton of stuff he wants to hit on. But, you know, one of the things that, you know, I've had the opportunity to heard you speak about before as well is the three P's, possible, plausible, probable. Mm -hmm. I guess when you're thinking through these, each of those, I mean, do, are they equal weighted or is their relevance sort of a function of whatever the, the risk tolerance is in the market environment? Or how do you look at this sort of progression between, oh, progression, progression, possible, plausible, probable? Okay. Now, now I, I have a book on investment philosophies about different ways of approaching the market where I talked about, you know, company, you know, investors who invest in young growth companies, invest in, in mature companies. And I said, there's nothing good or bad about these philosophies. You pick a philosophy that best matches your risk aversion and how you think about markets. One way to think about possible, plausible, probable is if you're a true value investor, the old time value investor, you will invest only 
in the probable. You need numbers, you need expectations. If you're a venture capitalist who invests in startups, you're investing almost entirely in the realm of possible. It doesn't make one better or worse than the other. It requires a different mindset. Here's one thing I would caution you. If you're a venture capitalist who invests in the possible, you need to spread your bets a lot more than an investor who invests in the probable. Why? Because we invest in the possible. For every 10 bets you make, one might pay off. You know, so you've got to accept that as reality. And the very best venture capitalists do that. They invest in the possible. They're investing in options. They're okay with it. And they don't judge success the way a value investor does, which is eight of my 10 investments have to pay off for me to succeed. So I think as long as you approach where you are in the life cycle, and to me, this is a big part of where companies in the life cycle, young companies tend to be more in the realm of the possible. Mature companies tend to be more in the realm of the probable. And you accept that in how you approach investing in these companies. There's nothing inherently good or bad about either philosophy. They're just different. They require different mindsets to work. Very interesting. So, so Oswith, uh, one of the things that I'm focused on is the distressed market. And maybe I should just ask you, when you think of distressed debt, what, what, what comes to mind for you? And how do you think about these broken companies? Because, uh, you know, I know you focus typically on equities and are very much, you know, at the top layer for a lot of uh, the equity markets. But, um, you know, the distressed debt world price is very volatile and you there is a lot of uh, you know capital price movement and 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 so i'm just curious how how you think about it if at all and uh, love to hear it it's true that distressed debts behaves more like equity than debt in fact if you look at the correlation between high yield bonds you know, AAA bonds and equities, there's probably more correlation between high-yield bonds, you not know, correcting for level changes in rates, high-yield bonds and equities than there is between high-yield bonds and highly rated bonds. Now, with, for me, the, the, big, the big issue with distressed debt is it's all about the price of risk. With equity, there are two complications. One is the price of risk is a player, but the cash flows are much more volatile because you're, you've got growth, you've got margins. I, you know, I tell people, look, fixed income people are far more focused. They're focused on, will I get paid? Will I get paid? Will I get paid? And that's really, those are the three questions. And as long as you can say yes to those three questions, who cares about growth and margins? With distressed debt, I think the price of risk shows up in, in the spreads you see on triple B, double B, single B rated bonds. And as an example, in 2022, those spreads more than doubled. So you could have invested in a double B rated company. Nothing would have might have changed about the company, but your bonds would have collapsed in value because the spreads on those bonds increased. So the price of risk becomes the central story. In the, when you look at distressed debt. And that price of risk reflects the, the hopes and fears that drive every other risk pricing that you see in the market. So with distressed debt, the focus is on the price of risk and that price of risk has varied over time. So as an investor, you're making a macro bet on what that price of risk will do in the future. And so now I'm going to ask you to 
possibly put numbers to stories and tell me how you would think about, you know, some of these situations. And, you know, I don't know how familiar you are with creditor on creditor violence. It's it, there's a lot of financial news about it. But basically, it's it's the concept that a lot of lenders, they buy a first lien piece of debt where they think they have the first priority on a set of collateral. And then uh, what happens is you have many lenders, you might have 10 lenders and then, you know, or let's say a hundred and 51 of those lenders equally amounted, um, you know, 51 decide, Hey, we're going to release that collateral, put it into a new uh, piece of debt. And we're going to get all of that because the concept being that that collateral wasn't going to pay all of that debt back. And I'm just curious, you know, it, it, it sort of shakes up the capital structure and it shakes up, you know, some basic assumptions that we've all been making for a long time. And, you know, I, I know you've, 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 um, you've really told the story well about the difference between valuation and pricing. And, um, I'm just curious how you, this would affect your idea of how we should be valuing things. No, there's, there's a shift that happens when a company goes from healthy to distress. And it's a continuum, right? It doesn't happen overnight. It happens as a continuum. And the shift is actually in how we think about value. For, for a company that's healthy, we think of value as a going concern, which means it's all about earnings and, and cash flow. So when you lend to a company, you're lending based on interest coverage ratios and do I have enough cash flows to cover it? And you base your lending rates on that. When that shift starts to happen to becoming a distressed company, you start thinking of value in terms of liquidation value. And liquidation value is not about earnings and cash flows. It's about what will I get if I sell the assets of the company in pieces to other players? It's a different perspective because it's more of a pricing game, right? This has nothing to do with cash flows. It's what will somebody pay for these assets? So it first alters what you're fighting over. You're not fighting over the going concern, you're fighting over liquidation value, which also means you want management in play that's focused on maximizing liquidation value rather than going concern value. And sometimes the two can be in conflict with each other. The actions that management takes that increases liquidation value can actually be at odds with the actions they would need to take for it to be a going concern. So the fight becomes over what will happen if the company liquidates, how much will we collect, and who's going to get first claims on those assets. So these creditor fights that you're, that you're seeing happen because the shift has occurred from going concern value to liquidation value. I mean, I often told bankers that you know, bankers around the world lend based on asset value, which I think is a mistake. Because if a banker has to depend on liquidating assets to get paid, he or she has already lost the game. Good lending always is about collecting interest and face value and then moving on to the next lending. So when the fight becomes over liquidation, you're going to get some very dysfunctional behavior on the part of everybody, on the part of management in the way they run the company, in the part of creditors of the company, in the, on the part of equity investors. Because once equity investors enter that phase, they're going to be encouraged to take bigger and bigger risks. It's kind of counterintuitive. The further underwater a company gets, the bigger the risk equity investors are going to take because they have nothing to lose, right? With limited liability, what does it matter whether you drown in 10 feet of water or 100 feet of water? So 
the, the, the nature of how companies get run and how the different players in the game play out the game changes when you get that shift from going concern value to, look, uh, to being distressed. So what you're talking about, I think, is what you would expect to see once the focus shifts away from building a healthy going concern business to getting the most value in liquidation. Everybody plays the game differently. Yeah, no, and you know, to to some extent, the scenario where a company goes into bankruptcy, it's not necessarily a liquidation; it's a reorganization. And then I guess it's it, it, that's a that's a problem. It's a legal, you know, it becomes a legal game. So who can get first dibs on that reorganized company? Right. And then you jockey for position, and the the people of the best lawyers and the most ironclad contracts. And the most bargaining power tend to win at the expense of those who don't. Right, and it's a. I guess that that's what we do in distressed debt is often take a look at all the branches on that probabilistic tree and do a scenario analysis off of that and probability weight that, and it, it, it's a combination of litigation and valuation. Valuation, you know, having done distressed debt for all these years, is, you know, it's funny. I always talk about there there's the pie and how you cut it up and you might be very good at playing the game of you know cutting up the pie to be you know maybe get 60 70 percent of the pie but if that pie is shrinking if it's a yeah. tiny pie it doesn't make a difference and your action and when your actions by themselves affect the size of the pie and that there's that feedback loop which is what you do to get a bigger slice of the pie can actually make the pie smaller yes and especially yeah. Especially when you look at bankruptcy professional expenses, yeah. all of those actions, it, like it, it's it's pretty incredible. Um, that uh, thank you very much. Uh, the, the I'm I'm going to follow up that, and I, forgive me for taking us into a darker place, but <laughs> I often think about this when as an investor. Um, you know, we have some very scary tales at this point right now. There's a lot of political and civil unrest. Um, Ben Franklin was quoted as saying at the Constitutional Convention that the United States was a republic if you can keep it. Um, Deteriorating finances, dysfunctional government, and crumbling institutional confidence mark our day. Um, You know, and another uh, Bridgewater Associates uh, former head, uh, Ray Dalio, um, you know, he's he's modeled the lives of empires and describes a six-stage framework in which his book, Principles for Dealing with the Changing World Order, where he believes the U.S. is near sixth stage, which is actually this, the war stage. And so, you know, I think we see that we're cut towards the end of this, uh, you know, uh, long cycle. How do you incorporate civilization risk into your valuation framework? If you do, I mean, you know, to, to some extent, people might say, well, it, it's all over if if if, if we're it's getting super there. dark. Why yeah. are we- <laughs> no, but but I think you know governments and institutions are just reflections of who we are as a people. The dysfunction we talk about, governments. Look around you, right? Look at look at behavior. You know, in the pub in the in 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 the in the public space, and I think you what you're seeing is a deterioration of just 
good citizen qualities across the board, not just in the U.S., around the world. Now, we can go around talking about what it is that's caused this meltdown, because it's not just the U.S., it's happening in Europe, it's happening in Asia, it's happening. So this isn't, uh, you know, so I think that dysfunction is, I think, the name of the game now. In fact, businesses are built around dysfunction. There'll be some businesses that benefit from this dysfunction. Let's be real which is dysfunction through time has always created winners and losers. And I think as a society, it's clearly not beneficial to us to have this dysfunction, but wishing it away is not going to make it go away because it's deep. You know, it's not fixing the institutions. We only had a different way of electing presidents. This would go away. No, it's not. It's, it's, it's I think, you know, it, it, it's deeply rooted in, 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 in people. And I think these dark, these dark impulses might have always been with us. And what we have now is a megaphone that's big enough that anybody with the darkest impulses has the capacity to go out there and reveal those. So maybe that's what's different. This has always been there, but now we're all aware of it. And that's making us all more dysfunctional. Now, I, I give the, the example of, you know, Active investing. Active investing has always been crappy, right? 60 years ago, 50 years ago. You know why we're more aware of it now? Because we can see how crappy it is, because we have the information, we have social media. And I think in a sense, what we're, you know, what we what we might be getting aware of is how dark human nature is, because we're reminded of it a hundred times a day on social media of you know what people will do. So I think that. No, I'm not as negative as Ray is about the future of not just the U.S., but of humanity, because I think, you know, we've survived in spite of our dysfunction through our entire existence on Earth. And I think we will again. But I think we need to learn to live with this dysfunction. You no, know, these idyllic systems which assume that good things will happen. We assume that people will do the right thing might not be the right systems not just in life, but in investing and valuation, we have to assume that there will be dysfunctional choices on the part of investors, on the part of lenders, on the part of managers, and start to build that in to our decisions. And, and as uh, strictly from an investment valuation perspective and or pricing uh, framework, you know, do you ever do you ever try and incorporate that into your valuation or, or pricing philosophies? It depends on the company, right? I mean, you're valuing a okay. fossil fuel company. Dysfunction is part of the game, right? Because if climate That's... change is a real factor and dysfunction is going to lead us to not do much about it, then it is going to affect the valuation of a fossil fuel company. If it's a consumer product company, it's going to be more in the background. So it's not the first thing I think about, but I do think about it in terms of, is this the type of company where, where I have to worry about dysfunction playing out in a com company like Meta? It might actually work in your favor. That dysfunction might be what leads people to social media for their news. And that's a good thing if you're a social media company. So dysfunction can play out in different ways. It's in the background for most companies, but in some companies it's front and center because it's driving the products and services that that company provides. Maybe that's... on a sort of a related theme, and, and we touched a little bit on the labor piece, but I guess you know the other things that sort of come up to me in, in the current market climate uh, and some of those geopolitical things that Phil was talking about. I mean, you know, we've got all this talk about, you know, near shoring and the incremental sort of fracturing of the globalized order. 
and, and maybe that changes some of your growth engines, whether you're talking China was always looked to as sort of being the repository for, I guess, all luxury goods or whatever else. I, I, how do you sort of think about, and, and maybe this is just part of the same sort of inflation discussion, but think about some of those sort of uh, supply chain uh, dynamics, uh, particularly for, I guess, more traditional kind of companies that actually have supply chains. <laughs> now, I think I, I was always uncomfortable when globalization was sold as an unalloyed good. I mean, for, for a while, everybody said globalization is amazing. In fact, it used to be a buzzword, right? We're globalizing, so equity prices will go up because everything in life has trade-offs. And Putting your factories in China might have lowered your cost, but it came you know, with consequences. In good times, we don't notice that stuff. And the last decade, we recognized what losing control of your supply chain can mean to you as a company. So I think even if you didn't have the political backlash against globalization, you'd see companies looking at the trade-off more carefully. Now, Birkenstock, for instance, has all of its factories in Germany. It has never, and it's done it strategically because it says, look, you know, we could lower our costs if we had factories elsewhere. But a big part of our brand name is controlling product, controlling the product quality, controlling what we put in our product. And we can do that better by keeping our factories in Germany. And they've deliberately chosen to do that. Not, and it's not because of some backlash against globalization. It's because it's a best business decision. My guess is you're going to see companies look at the trade-off more carefully now than they did 10 or 20 years ago. And that to me is a good thing. You know, anytime you get into something which is a buzzword and everybody decides to do it, you're going to overdo it. And I think we overdid the globalization part because, uh, you know, we were sold all the benefits of globalization, but nobody wanted to talk about the consequences or costs of doing so. Yeah, I often think about the ramifications of so many companies having a Russian operations, maybe nascent, maybe significant, and then basically writing it all off and yeah. forfeiting it. And, you know, there's a natural kind of uh, yeah, metaphor, you know, or not necessarily metaphor, but um, you might take that model to what happens if China does something in Taiwan? Are, are we going to see that same sort of framework? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it, it's, uh, I, I, I guess that's what you were hitting on is the globalization perhaps taken too far. And what's, what's the knee jerk reaction to that? I, I think the, the you know when when right after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, companies did pull out of Russia and they made it sound like they were doing it for the social good. And I said, stop lying, stop lying, because if China had invaded Taiwan, you wouldn't be as quick to jump out. The advantage for companies with Russia is, barring oil companies, there were very few companies with significant stakes in Russia. When you have two percent of your revenues from Russia, walking away and making it sound like you did it for the best of humanity is an easy thing to do. That's not going to be possible in China. How the heck do you walk away from the second largest economy in the world? How the heck do you walk away from an economy where 40% of your production comes out of that economy and 30% of your growth is dependent on the economy? That's going to really test this goodness argument for this is why we did it. So I think it is going to be, you know, it, it's, it, 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 it now, I've always thought about country risk as something that companies need to think about before they invest. 
And I think that's something I re-emphasize every six months when I compute my country risk premiums, which I do for my valuations, is I say, look, right now you might feel good about China, but that doesn't mean the risks in China have gone away. You need to bring in that risk into your required return, into your cost of equity and capital. And I think the last few years have been a reminder that country risk is under the surface. It might lie dormant for a while. But when it flares up, it can take down a big chunk of your value, and it's got to be factored in ex ante. Interesting. One thing that uh, I think we've seen a lot of during the uh, the pandemic, and then as we exit the pandemic, less so, is the whole meme stock, Bitcoin, uh, intrinsically worthless worthless assets trading at incredibly high prices. The way I view meme stocks is maybe there's a chance that these companies can pull off the cash flow that would justify the pricing that you see in the marketplace. But generally speaking, a lot of them may approximate, uh, you know, Bitcoin, which is, you know, really doesn't have any intrinsic value. And I, I'm just wondering, one of the things that's amazing about it is that you see corporates selling uh, you know, companies issuing equity to people, and I mean significant equity through at-the-market programs, um, and the SEC doesn't seem to have any issue with that to, to a large degree. And I just see, it almost seems like the Wild West out there in terms of equity financing, that if you can, you can, if your stock's up, you can sell it, and nobody's really looking out for the small guy. And I'm, do you ever like question, you know, is there a fine line between what would be considered fraud if you're selling something that's worthless to people and and the right to invest in whatever you want? No, I, I make I draw a contrast in my classes between what I call the value game and the pricing game. The value game is what you do. You try to value something and you try to buy at a price lower than value. In fact, much of valuation is built around that premise. But I tell my students, 95% of what you see in markets is not the value game, it's a pricing game. The pricing game, here's how you win. You buy at a low price, you sell at a higher price. You really don't care why. The, that's a trading mentality. There's nothing wrong with it. It's a different mentality. You buy GameStop at 200, not because you think the value of GameStop is greater than 200, but because you think you can sell it to somebody else at 300. That's what the pricing game does. And there were people who made money on the pricing game. It had nothing to do with value. It's as old as time. What's different though is two things. One is the pricing game was restricted by how many people you could influence, which meant in you know, the old stories of the South Sea bubble, the way the pricing game played out is you hired somebody to play a drunk in a, in a pub, and he would blurt out at a moment of drunkenness some rumor about a stock, which would then drive up the price the next day. Think of That's... the equivalent of that pub today, right? You get on Reddit, you create a group of people that you put out a story, and the story catches on. The pricing game is on steroids now. So when I see meme stock, it's an extension of what you see in the entire market. And it's easy to point fingers at the people in GameStop and AMC, but let's face it, the people who are buying Facebook and Google, the Fangam stocks in the last decade, these professional money managers were playing the meme stock game, but they like to talk about, you know, they, they like to still act like they did it because the value was that. No, it was price, it's a pure pricing game. 
What you see with these, you know, with these, with these smaller companies, GameStop, AMC, is the that these are small companies. There's light liquidity; it doesn't take a lot to push the price up. Is you see the pricing game run amok. The question you're asking is, should the SEC protect people who play that game? No, and I'm going to take an unpopular view, which is none of, you know, as I said early on, I don't worry about what other people do. In this case, nobody forces you to play the pricing game. You choose to do it. And the only way, unfortunately, that people learn the lesson of what happens when you play the pricing game too long is by playing it and losing. And I think, now I do agree on the point of there are, you know, with AMC in particular, I was, you know, I've been troubled by the fact that the management of AMC, the CEO in particular, has encouraged the pricing game, acted as a player, and then issued stock at that. I mean, I think Ryan Cohen is a grifter. I mean, and I'll say it up front. I think that what he's done with these stocks is is borderline price manipulation because of the way he's encouraged other people to play the game and then taken advantage of that pricing. On those, I think the SEC needs to act where management is actively encouraged and played the pricing game, pushed up the pricing, issued stock at the higher price and effectively taken advantage of the higher price because there I think you've crossed the line. But if you're a company that's the target of a pricing game and you as management have nothing to do with it, people are just pushing up the price, you know, I, I don't think the SEC has any role in that other than to let it play out. Now, in Bitcoin, I think that I will take a slightly more charitable view than you, which is, I mean, I've always been open to the possibility that Bitcoin is, a, is a, the currency of the future, as some of its advocates claim. In which case, the question I've always asked is, is it a good currency? First, currencies can't be valued. They can be priced. An exchange rate is the pricing we attach to currencies. And my problem with Bitcoin is 15 years after its creation, very few people use it in transactions. They trade it, but you can't use it to buy coffee. You don't see people. In fact, I go to Bitcoin conferences and ask people, when was the last time any of you used Bitcoin to actually buy something? Because that's really the role of a currency. And the answer is almost nobody in the conference has used it. They like to trade Bitcoin. They talk about how much money they've made in Bitcoin, but Bitcoin is not, a, and there's a reason for it. It's a very inefficient currency to use, right? If it takes a thousand Ukrainian miners to get on computers and check a math algorithm to see if you have enough money in your Bitcoin wallet to pay for your Starbucks coffee, that's not efficient. So it's not a very good currency. So I wouldn't pay $30,000 for a currency that nobody uses. The other argument for Bitcoin, and maybe it's millennial gold, it's like a collectible. But there's a simple test for a good collectible. The reason gold is a good collectible is it holds its value during crises. So you go back thousands of years, you go back even 100 years, you look at every market crisis, when stocks melt down and bonds melt down, gold tends to hold its value. So for the last 15 years, we've been able to observe whether Bitcoin has behaved like gold. And in every crisis, here's what I've seen. Take the 2020, the first three months during the COVID crisis. Stocks were down 33%. Gold was down only 3%. It held its value. Bitcoin was down 55%. When stocks are down 30%, Bitcoin is down 50%. When stocks are up 20%, Bitcoin is up 30%. It behaves like very risky stocks. It's not a good currency 
It's not a good collectible. So what am I getting for my $30,000? I don't know. Maybe somebody has a good answer for it. And maybe that's why they're paying the 30,000. But that's what I would ask myself when I look at the price of Bitcoin is, what do I get in return for the 30,000? So I think that with meme stocks, with Bitcoin, it's all pricing all the time. And when it's all pricing all of the time, you're at the mercy of the crowd. Mood and momentum can shift at the drop of a hat. Take a look at AMC's stock price over the last three years. I mean, you're going to see mood and momentum shift. And when mood and momentum shifts, you're going to see the price dramatically rise or drop. And if you're willing to play the game, play it with open eyes, which is it's all about getting in at the right time, getting out at the right time. And if you can do it well, all the more power to you. I'm not going to point fingers at you and treat you as a lesser player in the game. You played your game well, and I tip my hat off for that. Very interesting. So a, tr a true fan of the free markets and uh but but we do need regulation and, and to at least keep make sure people are telling the truth out there yeah um uh, but uh i'm gonna hit on one thing and then i think i'll pass it over to noel but um the u.s government played such a role in salvaging a lot of equities in the uh during the pandemic and specifically the the, the one company that i followed american airlines was given 10 billion dollars free and clear just to you know i think avoid some layoffs and you know some restrictions on executive pay um and not only that but they got incredibly cheap financing how, when you look at companies and, uh, you know, you, you, you look at uh, a lot of different companies and industries and, you know, how do you think about How do you incorporate government, uh, you know, the relationship with government if you can? Um, or, or do you just kind of, you know, or is that is that just in, somewhere in the uncertainty that you can't predict? Now, governments are, I mean, talked about stories for companies, right? There are some stories where the government is clearly a player. It's a player in the game, right? It's a player. For instance, if you're in a regulator, if you're valuing a regulated company, whether you like it or not, the government is in the room for your story because how well or badly you do will be defined by regulation. One of the things I always worry about when I value a company is failure risk. What happens if I can't make my debt payments and you force me to shut down? If the government is your ally, they can reduce failure risk by coming in and providing you with that, that, that base so that you don't fail. So you can argue that in the first quarter of 2020, the government offered a put option to companies and to invest in the companies saying, we'll protect these companies from failure. That increases your value. So governments can help the value of a company by making the rules more conducive, more in its favor, and by reducing failure risk. But governments can also hurt the value of your company. They can hurt the value of your company by passing rules that make it more difficult for you to grow and make money and by increasing failure risk. No, no. So I think that, uh, you know, this I, uh, in 2019, I wrote about the valuation of the big Chinese tech companies, Alibaba, Tencent, JD. And the reason I did that was for the longest time, we pushed up the value for these companies because we felt the Chinese government was their ally. So when you valued Alibaba or you valued Tencent, we valued Didi. Didi in particular, the argument was, hey, they're going to win because the Chinese government is on their side. And somewhere in 2018 and 19, we can argue about why this happened. The Chinese government went from being ally to adversary. 
I think it was driven by Beijing's desire for control. They looked at uh, Tencent and they said, these guys have 400 million people on their platform. They're becoming a threat to our power. So we're going to restrain them. So I talked about how the values of these companies changed because the government went from being an ally to an adversary. It put caps on their growth, it reduced their margins, it effectively raised their tax rate because they were required to pay money in excess of a normal tax rate, and it lowered their value as a company. So governments are can be big players in your company's story, and if they're big players, they can affect your value. And I think that it's not healthy in a market when most, when most companies have the government in their story. Because then every time the government moves or changes, your story changes and value changes. It makes markets much more volatile. Now, unfortunately, I think governments are inserting themselves into stories, not just in emerging markets where they've always been players, but in developed markets as well. No. And I think that effectively means that, especially if you're valuing a company where the government is a player in the game, that, that has to be factored into your story and value for the company. It's interesting. Hey, uh, coming at a slightly different uh, venue here in terms of one of the things I you know spend some time thinking about as well is sort of the evolution of the marketplace and thinking specifically whether you're talking about sort of relatively new asset classes like a private credit or the increased role of technology or systematic trading and whether it's credit or, or equities or otherwise. And I guess, you know, one of the things we've seen in the credit markets over the years, certainly since uh, the Fed became more interventionist post-financial crisis is sort of the compression of cycles, right? And one of the things that it seems that we may be seeing now with systematic in particular, but also because private credit is pulling capital away from the more traditional markets uh, is sort of the changing and you know the liquidity premium or the risk premium that we see in our markets. Do you uh, do you look at sort of marketplace evolution? Do you think uh, of risk premium as being a relatively constant thing, or do you say, hey, listen, no, it is really one of these things that can grow and shift and change over time? You know, I actually compute the equity risk premium for the S and P five hundred every month, and. Every company I value that month, I use the equity risk premium for the start of that month. That kind of answers your question because that wasn't something I did until 2008. Until 2008, I used to compute the equity risk premium at the start of a year and use it for the entire year. If you ask me what happened in 2008, then clearly you're too young. But you, you know, clearly you <laughs> remember 2008. Too young. I remember I mean, 2008. 2008 was a wake-up call. It basically said the 20th century is over. It took me eight years after the 20th century was over to remind me that this is a different global economy. Now, one of the downsides of globalization that nobody wanted to talk about was, you know, everybody's problem becomes everybody else's problem. In 1986, if it had a crisis in Brazil, the U.S. equity market didn't even notice it, right? You read about the crisis. Who cares? It's Brazil. Today, you have a crisis in Brazil. U.S. equities show it. So the first thing that means is risk premium are going to be much more volatile. I'm not saying higher or lower, they're going to be much more volatile. Globalization has made equity risk premium more volatile. It's also that, that structural break we got in 2008 also meant that looking at the past and assuming mean reversion, which is the way we've historically computed risk premiums, is let's look at what we made over the last 50 years, use that as a risk premium next year. It worked really well in the 20th century, no longer works. 
So the reason I compute a forward-looking premium and I compute it every month is I've accepted the fact that risk premium are going to change. I can't forecast how they will change. So all I can do is adapt my valuations to whatever they are now and then revisit them if risk premiums change enough. So I think that we are in a world of, with volatile risk premium and I think it it should um, it should drive how we think about investing and cost of capital. It basically means you can't sit with a hurdle rate you said 20 years ago and never revisit it because you're going to get into serious trouble if you do so. Uh, I'm going to jump in here. I um, one one area that I know you've been thinking about a lot lately, um, you know, is is streaming video and uh, and and sports, uh, specific, specifically okay. sports streaming rights. Um, we have a company in our distressed debt world uh, called Diamond Sports. It was a subsidiary of Sinclair. Yeah. Um, they had about 45 uh, professional teams across the NBA, NHL, and MLB. And they were paying for these rights to all the teams. And then they could have telecast those on their own regional sports networks that they were selling to the charter Comcast of the world, um, only within specific local regions. Um, I just point that out because, as you have uh, pointed out many times um, in in lectures, is that was that was a huge gap between pricing and valuation. Right. Um, you know that that was purchased for ten billion dollars by Sinclair back in two thousand nineteen, and now that company might be getting liquidated, and they they are just it, it's been a uh, one of the most horrific uh, falls in value or price, <laughs> however you want to look at it. Right. But, um, you know, one of the things that in recent research you pointed out that I think is interesting is, and, and maybe you can give me your thoughts on diamond situation if you have one, but uh, I'm also hearing interested in hearing your general thoughts about streaming um, sports telecast live versus, you know, just content creation. And, you know, maybe with an eye on where you see the vulnerable because uh, you know our our audience is a lot of distressed people and you know where might they be looking for troubled companies and and in this space um you know because it does look like it's going to be a rough going for in in this dynamic that we're heading into now let me back back up into the into diamond if they're distressed it must be that they have debt outstanding that they're unable to make debt payments on right about 10 billion Okay. And here's why I think it's a problem. Now, I've always argued that when you enter into a contractual commitment, you borrowed money. So when I value Netflix, for instance, I treat their contractual commitments, their content commitments as debt. I don't do it because I want to be a stickler, but because a company that has entered into contractual commitments is already heavily indebted. The mistake, in my view, that Diamond made was not that they entered into the, you might have no choice, you have to pay these streaming commitments, but that they borrowed money on top of those commitments because the accountants didn't treat it as debt. I mean, that's the problem, right? As long as some, you know, it's not treated as debt in the balance sheet, people lend the money. So both the lenders and the company were guilty of a sin of not treating contractual commitments as debt. I know accountants have dealt with at least half the problem now with operating lease commitments being treated as debt. 2019, it took them 70 years to come to the recognition that lease commitments are debt. I 
would hope that contractual commitments like streaming commitments you entered to also get started because until that happens people are going to lend money to these companies and wring their hands afterwards and say i wonder what happened here well you just overlevered you were at 90% debt without even realizing it now in terms of you no know, streaming itself i think we're in this very very strange place where streaming is displacing traditional ways of delivering content whether it's entertainment or sports content but streaming hasn't figured out how to make the model work it's like ride sharing right ride sharing has displaced taxi cabs but neither uber nor lyft nor didi nor any of the other ride sharing companies have figured out how to make the model work in terms of making the money it's one of the things i've always talked about with disruption disruptors can ruin the status quo but they can replace the status quo with something that is not sustainable because it doesn't have a core business model streaming right now is in that space they've displaced many of the existing ways in which you get content but they haven't figured out how to make money i mean look at the big streaming companies and i'm going to go outside the streaming space netflix its mo- its model for content is make 100 shows and hope something sticks it is which is the exact opposite of traditional content business hbo max goes to the other other extreme which is make a few shows spend a lot on them you know disney is kind of neither here nor there they've kind of spent a lot of money on extension but none of them really has a sense of you know none of them is making money in any traditional sense including netflix i'm not sure what steady state will look like in streaming and none of the players right now do as well that's why the entertainment space is trouble you've displaced an existing way of delivering content with a new way but the new way is not working in terms of making money yet Now eventually we'll figure it out but there'll be a lot of bankruptcies along the way and expect a few entertainment companies to be in that space not just in the sports space but another in the other streaming space yeah it's it, it seems to be and one of the interesting things you pointed out and I've heard it pointed out I think on a podcast called the watch where they they talk about how the music industry um you you don't have like oh you can only listen to rod stewart and the beatles on one streaming platform apple and spotify pretty much have all the all the content right. and here we're trying to set up in the video space uh netflix i need a netflix subscription i need a max subscription and it where is this all going yeah and you know i i i think you know maybe that's an interim yeah. phase that we're adding into but you know ultimately aren't the content isn't it just going to be a front end where you have access to all the video you know what it's interesting because for the last decade silicon valley has sold us on this notion that technology is going to not just set us free but make things cheaper but kathy would say you know because of technology you're going to spend less money on entertainment because you're going you know i'll predict that 3 years from now when you look at or even right now when you look at what you're spending across your spe- your different streaming platforms you're already spending more than you used to for that old cable network that you are so quick to abandon same thing with with car service right when uber and lyft first came along you did save money relative to take taking taxi cabs i keep tabs on how much i spend on 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 car service and i'm now up to spending more than i used to on taxi cabs so 
ultimately technology doesn't make our lives you know, more economical, doesn't make things cheaper, it just delivers things in different packages. That's when, when people say, well, AI is going to make things cheaper for all of us because we're now going to have machines doing what people are doing. I'm saying, not so fast. Ten years from now, I'm going to look back and say, what the heck happened here? Because the history of technology seems to be displacing the status quo with what they claim is a cheaper alternative. But then over time, that cheaper alternative gets more and more expensive and ends up becoming more expensive than the status quo. So I know that's a cynical look at the world, but I think that's where we're going to end up. We're going to look back and say, you know what, we're just spending differently, but we're not spending less. The pendulum swinging back. <laughs> okay. I, I think uh, so, Aswath, one of the things that you uh, talk about as we sort of, you know, roll into the conclusion of the, uh, this episode, but, you know, you talk about faith, right, and sort of the need for faith and sort of the, the valuation process. So I guess maybe walk us through how big a role you think that plays in terms of when you're approaching a story or, or a number, as the case may be, uh, and, and then particularly, I guess, as it relates to sort of the projections of the future. You know what? Uh, we talked about investing, where you value something and you buy when the price is less than value. Inherent in that action is the faith that eventually the price is going to adjust to value. And this is the difference between equity markets and fixed income markets. In the bond market, there's a day of reckoning, right? You know, if you buy something that's mispriced in the bond market, by the time you get to the maturity date, that mispricing is going to disappear because it is a maturity date. That's why fixed income arbitrage is real. Equity arbitrage is a mirage. Why? Because there is no day of reckoning. You can buy something that's undervalued. It can get more undervalued for the next 15, 20, 25 years. And there's no guarantee that the price will ever get, no, get to the value. That's a faith part of investing. I'm open about it. I say, look, I'm going to invest because I believe that, you know, whatever, Apple is undervalued or a meta is undervalued. When I bought it in November of 2020 after that, or 22, after the horrific earnings report, I said, I believe at $95 that meta is undervalued. But I'm open to the reality that 10 years from now, I'm going to look back and say, no, it's not going to happen. That's the faith part. I would qualify, though. For me, my faith is not unquestioning. You know, and what I mean by that is I'm always uncomfortable when somebody says, I absolutely believe, you know, it's dogma. Then it's not faith. It's dogma. It's one reason I'm uncomfortable in Omaha, Nebraska, when I, you know, I've been to that meeting. I've never been actually in the meeting, but I've talked to people at the meeting. And what makes me uncomfortable with the crowd is their absolute certitude that they're the chosen ones. They've done the homework. They've read the right books. They're doing the right thing. Therefore, the, the follow-up is, therefore, they're guaranteed heaven on earth in terms of investing, in terms of return. There are no guarantees in life. So faith is recognizing that, you know, you, you're, you have that faith that price will adjust to value, but also recognizing that you could do everything right in your lifetime. And I have nothing to show it. And I'll, I give people, and as a, as a parting thought, I give them a test when they want to be active investors. I said, if you're investing in equities and you want to be an active investor, I have a question. Let's say you get to 85, you're on your deathbed. You've spent the last 60 years doing intrinsic valuation investing based on that. Your friend, your closest friend for the last 60 years, 
comes to your deathbed. And I don't know why your closest friend would do it, but he says, look, I've just examined your returns over the last 60 years, and you'd have made more money putting your money in an index fund 60 years ago than with all your analysis and stock picking and valuation. Ask people, would you be okay with that? And if your answer is no, I would say don't be an active investor because that is always a very real possibility. You can do everything right and have nothing to show for it and you have to be okay with it. You have to enjoy the process of investing enough that you say, look, so the, my only rule in investing is do no harm. Don't overdo things. Don't double down. Don't concentrate on three stocks because you think you're right. Because hubris is your biggest enemy as an investor and accepting the fact that you can do everything right and be an average investor, I'm okay with that. Now, as the outcome, if that is what it is. That seems like a perfect place to conclude today's episode. So with that, let us uh, extend our, our deepest thanks and gratitude to Ashwath. And once again, thank you all for your time today and dialing in and listening. Uh, it was our pleasure, uh, Professor Damodaran, to have you on today's State of Distressed Debt. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Appreciate it. So great conversation as always. And I think it's important to every now and again take a step back and uh, look in from a more macro viewpoint. Uh, so valuable to do that. But let's maybe go micro again. And Nagisa, I'd like to start with you and uh, Hawaiian Electric. Uh, and the fires uh, that we had in Lahaina still sort of raising concerns around uh, around the companies and how that might play out. So what do you have for us there? Yeah, so we, we do want to be careful about this now. Uh, Hawaiian Electric is clearly not in bankruptcy, nor is there an expectation that they will be in bankruptcy. Uh, we don't want it discussion sort of to be taken as suggestions that they might find itself in chapter 11 at some point because the company for now seems determined to to oppose lawsuits filed against it in a state court. Uh, these are lawsuits related to the Maui wildfires. Uh, that said, wildfire liabilities uh, when faced by utilities are a unique type of liability and uh, Fortunately or unfortunately, we do happen to have precedent for it in PG&E, which back in 2019 chose to pursue resolution of that liability in bankruptcy court, uh, a very different venue, obviously, than uh, the Hawaiian Electric losses now in state court. Uh, so there are now over 20 state court actions filed as of, as of September in Hawaii. Big picture-wise, uh, Hawaiian Electric is accused of negligently uh, failing to shut the power, though it is claiming that it turned it off after the first fire. So there are now suggestions by uh, Hawaiian Electric that the second fire may have occurred after the power was shut off. Uh, so that statement that those power lines were shut down before the second fire does create this kind of fact dispute as to causation, and likely that's what will be heavily litigated in courts. Um, that said, uh, it isn't necessarily an easy road ahead uh, for, for the company. That's largely because of the theory of liability in Hawaii, where 
even if the utility is liable, say, 1% responsible for the fires, because of this joint and several liability theory, it could actually end up being liable for all of the economic damage related to personal injury suits if whoever the liable, the other liable defendant is can't actually pay. Um, and uh, as far as non-economic damages, if it's found to be liable, say, 20% or more responsible, um, it would also would have to cover those economic damages. So these issues of fault causation will end up being jury questions if the if the cases proceed. Um, so now we have this utility that's exposed to potentially billions of dollars of liability, the full amount estimated uh, by FEMA to rebuild stands at around $5.5 billion now. And uh, kind of bringing back PG&E a little bit, uh, they are, obviously the two are attempting to address these liabilities in very different paths with Hawaiian Electric staying in state court and PG&E choosing a different route in, 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 in bankruptcy court. Uh, where we stand today, I think the most important thing to note right off the bat is that the Hawaii and California's approaches to liability are quite different and probably that's the most significant difference now in the ultimate in the ultimate outcome of this of the suits um, when you compare Hawaiian Electric and PG&E specifically under California's inverse condemnation law uh, a utility is strictly liable regardless of whether it acted negligently. Uh, so PG&E was held responsible for any fire damage caused by its equipment. Um, as long as that fire was caused by its equipment, it didn't matter, for example, whether PG&E was actually negligent. It didn't matter how well it maintained the power lines. Uh, in Hawaiian Electric's case, as I mentioned before, the company's role in the fire will be heavily disputed. Um, uh, California's inverse condemnation law that was originated from California's constitution, because it was state created and it didn't conflict with uh, U.S. bankruptcy code, uh, the bankruptcy code was bound to apply that law as as it was. There were attempts back then to challenge the law in bankruptcy. Uh, that didn't go nowhere. Obviously, the, the, the bankruptcy court maintained that it was unable to address any of it. Um, so uh, kind of where we are today, I think it may be helpful to sort of indulge a little bit briefly, but kind of touching some of the high points of uh, PG&E's bankruptcy that ultimately led to its completion. Uh, it may or may not be relevant to Hawaiian Electric down the line, but I guess if we had to summarize sort of the central themes of PG&E's bankruptcy, one, uh, probably the First and most important would be AB 1054, which was the law that was that set up the 21 billion wildfire fund that was primarily aimed at paying future uh, uh, fire obligations, the fire liabilities. Um, it's uh, without it, uh, most likely PG&E's uh, plan and its ultimate bankruptcy exit would have been vulnerable to uh, feasibility objections, and uh, with by kind of exiting bankruptcy with this detailed wildfire fund contributions, as well as ongoing funding commitment, as well as numerous guidelines in terms of operational safety metrics, it, it resolved those feasibility issues. Um, 
fire claiming fire claim estimation was was a gating issue in PG&E. It entered bankruptcy back then with, I think, an estimated thirty billion in wildfire liability and twenty four billion in outstanding funded debt. Uh, but uh, when the court considers sort of the next steps, it opted to have a trial court to oversee the litigation with respect to the 2017 Tubbs fire, which had about uh, 18 billions in claims. That was an extraordinary move, I'd say, from the bankruptcy court. We typically, we know bankruptcy halts litigation, and bankruptcy judges tend to like having control of of claims of that kind. They're generally well-equipped to estimate toward claims in the aggregate, even for, for voting or plan confirmation purposes. So this ability to pursue resolution of claims by trial likely did give victims some leverage in negotiation. Um, exclusivity determination was another big point. The court allowed competing plans back then by fire victims and a, groups of, and a group of unsecured note holders. That became probably a turning point in the case in terms of completing the reorganization purpose. Uh, as it's often the case, only one plan ended up making its way to creditors, but that did certainly uh, was a certainly significant development. Uh, terminating exclusivity was a significant development. Um, I think uh, I'd leave it at that. Uh, I think this was meant to be an introductory kind of uh, entry into this. We may probably, well, we may never have to talk about Hawaiian Electric again, but I think it's probably helpful uh, to kind of view um, this wildfire claims for two perspectives when you look at PG&E and where Hawaiian Electric is now. All right. So maybe changing gears a little bit here, uh, Nagisa, and maybe moving back into crypto space. I know it's been something you've been following quite closely. Uh, maybe we lead off with sort of any updates you might have on the Alameda grayscale situation. Yes. Yeah, so last time we talked about this was uh, mid-September. Uh, then Alameda was seeking and had in, sort of in a way promised to add other shareholders to the lawsuit, to join the lawsuit against Grayscale, which back then was attempted to return about $9 billion in value. Uh, it didn't. Uh, it, instead, it filed a revised complaint where it listed a number of parties that had expressed a willingness to join the lawsuit, um, Fur Tree Partners, um, Owl Creek Asset Management were two of them, but uh, it ultimately wasn't able to fulfill that necessary 10% shareholder support that it needed to pursue a portion, just a portion of its suit that was targeting grayscale sponsor fees. Um, so the new complaint that they ended up fail, uh, filing in September dropped those causes of action. Um, there's a possibility that they add plaintiffs in the future and bring back those those claims, but for now they're removed. Uh, to be clear, uh, we didn't think that an adjustment of sponsor fees that Alameda was requesting was required under the agreements. Uh, but admittedly, that cause of action, if it was actually proceeding, may have continued past the motion to dismiss stage because it it may have required a more sort of fact-intensive inquiry. Um, 
So what we have now is a revised complaint that actually revised the numbers also. Instead of 9 billion that Alameda had previously anticipated, uh, the complaint now seeks, seems to estimate just about 4 billion in value that it's targeting to unlock for shareholders. What we're left is with the challenge, just with the challenge of Grayscale's decision not to offer offer redemptions for its Bitco Bitcoin and Ethereum trust. Uh, we continue to think that that's probably uh, by asking that uh, Alameda is probably asking that the company takes uh, Grayscale takes an unjustified risk by offering redemptions right now. But it's also especially the case since Grayscale did win. Uh, it's uh, the case against SEC on the end of August that could eventually clear um, launch of uh, its first Bitcoin ETF fund, uh, and that may render this request sort of uh, moot to begin with. So maybe sticking with the uh, theme of crypto. Uh, so FTX Genesis, that's another one that's sort of been making its way in the world today with everything it's got. Yeah, so we, we've discussed the settlement before. This is a settlement that in, uh, involves FTX's two, resolves FTX's $2 billion in avoidance actions against Genesis. FTX approved, FTX court approved the deal. The Genesis court held a hearing in September. Uh, I don't think we need to get into the specifics of this again, but I think what's interesting now as we stand today is kind of noticing concerns, the significant concern that still remains surrounding sort of this deal's potential interference with other legal disputes. There's obviously sort of significant interconnectedness among these crypto companies that one, you're seeing a lot of debtor versus debtor disputes, but most particularly, you're also seeing this avoidance actions. Um, and this settlement, by virtue of being a 1919 bankruptcy settlement, which are generally favored, with well, the debtor that's proposing it really isn't required to show more than the settlement just isn't below the lowest points in the range of reasonableness. I guess that's sort of the standard we're looking for. There's not a heavy burden to prove the settlement. So it does leave a lot of unanswered questions about what it all means and about this ability of these companies to claw back funds that were received by another just before the filing of the Chapter 11. This became obvious towards the end of September where Genesis actually declined to provide the court with further support for the settlement, uh, even for quote-unquote in-camera review by the court, uh, out of concern that the documents could still implicate issues that overlap with other Chapter 11 disputes that are out there. Uh, and what we're talking about here is sort of the central themes that we have in mind are the are certain safe harbor defenses under Section 546E, uh, the questions as to what constitutes this transfer, what it means to be a transfer in the ordinary course, whether FTX could contest this applicability of this ordinary course defense, for example, based on alleged fraud of, at FTX and Alameda in the past. So there's just a lot of issues here that obviously played a role when the settlement was reached, but they never actually made its way to the court. They were never briefed, so we just don't have an answer. And these companies that entered in the settlement simply just seem to want it that way, just so that we don't interfere with other uh, parallel settlements that could be going on out there.
So a lot to certainly keep uh, track of there, and we'll continue to monitor that crypto space as we go forward. But Phil, I do want to bring you back into the conversation here and a couple of names that I know you've been monitoring and actually, I think actually tie in neatly to the conversation that we were able to have with Professor Demdaran earlier today. Uh, Odyssey and Diamond, maybe we could start with Odyssey. Sure. Um, Odyssey is getting interesting. Uh, they entered the grace period on their notes. They had an $18 million coupon payment due on September 30th. They decided to skip it um, to negotiate with their lenders on a potential plan to, uh, in quotes, potential plan to strengthen capital structure. Um, you know, this is this is what we see typically before a company is heading into bankruptcy. Um, you know, they skip their coupon payment they negotiate hopefully a, a plan of reorganization and they file, you know, with the range of outcomes is a prepackaged deal where they can get all the signatures and then it's it's a lot easier and faster all the way to a free fall. You know, we didn't get anywhere. So I, you know, what we will be seeing. But just to sum it up, it's one point nine billion dollars of debt, um, nine hundred million dollars of first lien about a billion dollars of second lien notes and 115 million dollars of EBITDA. Those first lien term loans are trading at 43 cents on the dollar. It's pretty much the lows um, and the bonds are trading two cents on the dollar. Uh, One of the difficulties here is that the Field family owns uh, significant equity and significant part of the vote, uh, 16% of the equity and over 33% of the uh, vote. So I imagine the goal is to completely delever if this company is looking at debt capacity with interest rates where they are, especially in this space. Um, My goal, if I was uh, sitting in the shoes of the first lien lenders, is like, We'll take all the company back and we'll provide you new liquidity via debt for uh, exit exit liquidity. But that would and you know, it also, if I'd be sitting in the first lien seat, I'd be saying, and this, nobody else gets anything. But, uh, of course, would you, would you actually ocean, give them like yeah. term debt or would you just give them like a revolver? Because I think term debt at 15, 16, 17 percent or whatever we've been seeing lately, that sounds like a, a bit of a lift. Yeah, that's 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 the way. That's what we saw. That's what we continue to see is that the new money's usually going in as uh, very high coupon paper. Um, you know what was interesting is sometimes non-callable for a year, and then you know you can call it at a very cheap price if people want to get out of the name. Um, but uh, yeah, I would I would expect. You know, look, the company needs liquidity. It had eighty-four million dollars at the end of June, so you can you can give it some liquidity, um, and you can make a high coupon on that. That would be that would be you know probably what the first liens would be proposing here, and then uh, who knows how hard the equity has been pushing back. This this is dragged out. I mean, you know, the company's been paying coupons on debt that's trading below ten cents for a while now, so. Uh, it's, 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 I imagine there's a lot of friction there. Um, and we will see where this goes. So maybe diamond, let's talk about diamond. Cause that's, uh, that's a big and, and, and sort of messy one. Uh, I guess maybe a lot of levers to pull there. Yeah. So diamond sports, there's a couple parts. I'm going to stick with the reorganization today. The Sinclair litigation is a whole separate topic that we could go on and on about. But for today, I think let's focus on what 
I think the company's really focused on. And uh, that's one thing is they filed a motion to extend loose exclusivity from to January from November because that that's when it's set to run out. Um, they are deep in mediation with two U.S. bankruptcy judges who have seen a lot. Um, to put it mildly, uh, Judge Marvin Isger, Judge David R. Jones down in the Southern District of Texas. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we did in September was we put forth our own blueprint for a reorganization um, that, you know, it's such a complicated reorganization because you have these three professional leagues. Each of these leagues have about 30 teams. Um, and with their own complicated uh, financings and, and governance. And then on top of that, so they're getting all of these rights payments. And for this company to be a reorganized entity, um, you know, we put forth a, co- a number of principles that we think you'd need to do. And one of those things is they need about a 50% haircut on these sports rights payments. And in exchange for the teams providing that there's about 40 professional teams covered here um we we propose that the mlb nba and nhl would own 50 percent 25 percent and 10 percent of the this new entity going forward now this is all very hypothetical and obviously the numbers adjust but the the basic concept is that uh this company cannot reorganize if it doesn't have that kind of support, and it needs to be substantial support. Um, We also propose that they abandon their own direct-to-consumer streaming product and really look to hop on some of these bigger streaming platforms for for, uh, a fee. And, you know, you, like, maybe give exclusive deals to Max, maybe to Apple, maybe to Prime, you know, but... Do, something's got to be done there in, in terms of putting their content on a on a uh, platform that has reach. Um, and you don't want just one platform because that's how you limit reach. Uh, anyway, um, that's the we, check out your Bloomberg intelligence research uh, if, <laughs> if, if, if you want to get the full story there. But um, and, uh, you know, just to sum it up, I mean, the assets here in this in is a litigation trust chasing one and a half billion dollars from Sinclair, JP Morgan and Bally's. Um, it'd be this 15%, roughly 15% stake in this reorganized entity that would be, you know, half owned by the major league baseball and, um, a 20% stake. in yes, that we think probably makes sense to sell or to pay, help pay down the first lien lenders here. But, um, Anyway, and to be yeah, clear, I, that's your hypothetical rework. This is very, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah thank you. Right. Very so, hypothetical, so, but uh, blueprint is what we called it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because it does tie into, you know, what we were talking with Professor Damodaran about in terms of this sort of disruption, uh, technology-led disruption, but not necessarily having whatever the business model that you need behind it to, to sort of, you know, kind of uh, present some sort of continuity. But with that, I guess that uh, brings us to, Another fantastic episode of State of Distress Debt. And with that, I'd like to once again thank uh, Phil and Nagisa here on this call, as well as Professor Aswath Damodaran for joining us this month. And with that, we look forward to having you all back with us in November. Take care.